You are listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Evan Banks. And I'm Deanna Lee. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's February 3rd. At its core, a country's defense strategy is a very expensive gamble. Every year, the U.S. spends hundreds of billions of dollars on defense, all on the assumption that such investments will allow it to win the next war. Policymakers rarely get a window into whether these bets pay off. But when other countries fight a war using American military equipment and tactics, as we're seeing today in Ukraine, policymakers can gain valuable insights about U.S. defense investments. These situations don't emerge every day, and that's a good thing since it's war we're discussing, after all. The U.S. last had a window into its defense investments during the 1973 Arab-Israeli War, also known as the Yom Kippur War. U.S. Army leaders witnessed in real time how U.S. equipment and tactics used by the Israeli army fared against their Soviet counterparts in the Egyptian and Syrian militaries. Israel's near defeat prompted a thorough re-examination of U.S. military weapons and strategy. Lessons from the conflict led to a new doctrine, providing the intellectual bedrock for how to blend ground maneuvers, precision air power, and overall speed, the very mix of strategies that enabled the U.S. defeat of Soviet-equipped Iraq during the first Gulf War. To this day, the Yom Kippur War continues to shape how the U.S. military plans for the future. According to Rand's Raphael Cohen and John Gentile, Russia's war in Ukraine once again poses questions about how the U.S. prepares for conflict. For example, given the Ukrainians' successful use of anti-tank weapons and the ubiquity of unmanned aerial systems in ground combat, how relevant is the tank in future conflicts? And do helicopters still have a place on the modern battlefield? Ukraine has managed to destroy or damage about 75 Russian helicopters, including the most advanced models, mostly by using relatively old air defense missiles. And more broadly, how are wars most likely to play out in the future? Will these conflicts be short, sharp affairs or grinding, protracted struggles? Cohen and Gentile say that if the U.S. does learn the lessons of this war, as it did after the Yom Kippur War 50 years ago, then it may secure the U.S. military's edge for decades to come. But if it doesn't, then it may not get a second chance. The U.S. and France share the goal of maintaining stability and the rules-based international order in the Indo-Pacific. For both countries, this objective plays out in a few key areas keeping China's ambitions in check, maintaining and promoting free access in the region, and preventing nuclear proliferation. Washington, however, often seems to overlook France as an Indo-Pacific power. A new report by Rand's Stephanie Pazard identifies ways the U.S. Army can further cooperate with France in the region. These include increased information sharing, combined partnerships with other countries, and participation in joint exercises and training. The U.S. and French armies could also take greater advantage of France's permanent presence in the region, its knowledge of the area, and its proficiency across the entire spectrum of operations, from stabilization to high-intensity conflict. 
One key issue to keep in mind when considering U.S.-France cooperation in the Indo-Pacific is the disconnect between how each country defines the region geographically. This could create limits and missed opportunities, particularly as it relates to the western border of the region. Extending the U.S. vision of the Indo-Pacific to the western Indian Ocean is particularly critical, Pazard writes, when it comes to monitoring and containing China's rising influence. Software supply chain security is a top concern for private companies and government agencies of all sizes. But understanding the problem and finding methods to estimate and reduce the risk is a massive challenge for several reasons, says Rand Sasha Romanowski. First, the number of open-source packages and libraries is tremendous. GitHub, an online platform that manages software for others, hosts more than 200 million software repositories. And each programming language uses its own system for tracking software across its ecosystems. For example, JavaScript and Python, two very popular programming languages, support more than a million packages combined. Second, very little is known about the extent to which organizations use these packages. There is no directory that describes which companies use which software components, and, in fact, companies themselves may not even know the breadth of software they use for their critical business operations. Third, the tools that could analyze the risk levels of open-source software have yet to be built. So what would it take to address the problem? Solutions start with filling in the, quote, massive gap in our understanding of software dependency, Romanowski says. Fortunately, the data needed to map out the extensive network of open-source software already exists. The data are incomplete, and they aren't easy to find, but they do exist. According to Rand's Derek Grossman, the Biden administration's policy towards Southeast Asia has improved since last year, but there is still work to be done. To start, the White House does not have a viable economic strategy that includes Southeast Asia, he says. What Southeast Asian countries really want from Washington is additional market access to the U.S., and that seems to be a political non-starter for the Biden administration. Further, U.S. emphasis on containing China could alienate key countries in the region. Quote, It's no secret that Southeast Asia is increasingly uncomfortable with U.S.-China competition and how it might impact the region's security and stability. In fact, For many, if not most, governments in Southeast Asia, the Biden administration has fanned the flames of U.S.-China competition by resurrecting the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, or the Quad, which partners the U.S. with Australia, India, and Japan. Yet another significant challenge for this administration is how to square its values-based foreign policy with the difficult reality of Southeast Asia— a region of mostly authoritarian and semi-authoritarian states. Despite these issues, Grossman concludes that the Biden administration had a much improved 2022 when it comes to Southeast Asia, and that progress is likely to continue this year. Quote, as long as U.S.-China competition does not boil over, he says, Southeast Asian states will feel comfortable deepening their ties with Washington. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. 
For more on today's episode, check the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. We'll see you next week.